This morning as we enter in these moments of prayer, we are reminded that it is the love of Jesus that unites us, that brings us together in these moments. As we pray this morning, we're going to pray for a few people who are hurting in the life of our church. We're going to pray for Barb Holman. She was diagnosed with cancer last week, and they're trying to figure out the best treatment to go forward with her. So we pray for Barb and her family. I'm going to pray today for uh, the Olson family and for Carolyn McElroy, especially as Carolyn has been put on hospice care. And so I'm going to pray for Carolyn, especially Anne and her family in these days. We're going to continue to pray for them. We're excited today. In just a few moments, I'll mention that little Matthew Sarah's first Sunday with us is today. So we're glad for him. And uh, we're excited for their family. So it's important in the middle of, as we pray for those who are hurting and suffering, that we remember those who bring us new life and joy. And then we want to pray today, as you probably saw on the news, um, shooting at at a newspaper. We want to pray that that people begin to recognize the only transformative thing that happens is in the lives of people's hearts. Until the the thing in which we love most dear becomes Jesus. Until that day we live in kind of broken spaces and places, even among the people who gather at the church. And so may we embrace God's love in such a way that our hearts are changed so that our neighbors' hearts are changed. We pray with me this morning? Father, we come before you and we, we first thank you for who you are. We thank you that you invite us to come into your presence every single moment of every single day that you are with us, that there is no place that we go that you are not already present, that your love for us is greater than we could ever comprehend or know in the midst of heartache and struggle in good times and in bad, that you are near. As we sing these words that Jesus is calling, he calls to each of us, he desperately longs for us to know the fullness of God's love goes to the place of even death on a cross so that you and I, so that all of us, Father, can know your love. Father, we pray that we become not just receivers of that love, but givers of that love. We pray in our words, in our speech, in our actions, that we would be a people who reflect this divine love that is gracious and slow to become angry forgives easily, that loves well. And Father, if we will do that, can you imagine, can we dream together what would happen in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our community, and even here among your people? So Father, will you help us this day to reflect that? May we pray for one another. We pray today for Carolyn, for Jim and Ann, for all their family. We pray today for Barb and for her kids that you'd be with them in these days as they make difficult choices about the best right next step. And Father, we continue to pray that you help us to become your unique people full of grace, hope, and love. And as we're reminded this week again that this world desperately needs people who live out of such a place of love that they impact those around them in deep, life-changing ways. So may we become more and more that, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, hey, I'm, I'm glad that all of you are here and not on vacation because that means it's probably just too hot for you to go camping. Um, that's probably why some of you are here right now, so we're, we're glad you're here this morning. Um, we, we're really glad if you're guests with us this morning. We hope you'll take the time to fill out the connections pad, and we have a gift for you at the Welcome Center as you leave today. And so I want to remind you that, that this morning... Um, 
At the end of the service, we'll take communion together. And so if you're a guest with us, you, you can feel free to join or not join. Uh, we, we just recognize it's a, an opportunity to come to the table and recognize it as God's grace for us. It's an invitation to accept his love, and it is a, a uniting sacrament of his people. And so we'll take that this morning. But between then and now, we'll continue to look at the book of James, this letter by Jesus' brother, and he, he writes kind of really practical living. And so, in fact, whether you are a follower of Jesus today or not, God invites us to reflect his character in our life. And so we want to try to understand what does it look like to do that. And so my question for you this morning, have you noticed how people start arguing at really young ages? Have you noticed that? I mean, people start arguing like when they can talk. In fact, I, I was thinking about my, my kids, the, the things I hear on a regular basis. I was there first. I want to pick what's on TV. I want to sit there. I want to get in the car first. I want to get out of the car first. I can keep going all day long. Like, I've got plenty. In fact, I asked my wife, I said, are there any things they argue about, like, when I'm not here that I just don't know about, that I've never experienced and, and that I could know? And she says, everything. There's nothing they don't argue about. It doesn't matter what it is. So, I've just, my kids are that way, but in fact, I've noticed that it's not really just kids, it's kind of people. In fact, have we noticed how people are really good at telling their opinion but not listening to the opinion of others? Have you noticed how we can argue about all kinds of stuff and sometimes we have no idea what we're talking about? We just like to argue. We jump to the conclusions without having all the information or all the facts. We do that pretty easily. Have you noticed how on social media or on television we, we don't really want to have charitable conversation? We tell you we're right and you're wrong and here's why. I mean, sometimes we're so passionate about issues that we never think about what the betterment of, of others is. We just yell and argue. I mean, sometimes we argue just so we can be right, at least in our own minds, if nothing else. But at the end of the day, this leaves us asking a particular question. This leaves us kind of wrestling with some things that I think really do matter. Why are we arguing? In other words, what's the motive behind our arguing? What is the root cause? Is our argument about me and what I want? Or is our argument about others and the sake of them? Or is the argument about, about thinking God's leading in something? What, what are we arguing about? Why do we argue? See, our motives drive a lot of what we do in life. What we're motivated by dictates part of how we live. So in truth, as we look back over our lives and begin to reflect what we've said and done, if we're honest, for most of us, too often we look back and we think, you know, I'm not sure my motives were as pure as I said they were. Now, maybe we knew that, maybe we didn't in those moments. I mean, how do we come to the place where, where we begin to know what our motives are? See, I, I think for many of us, um, motives kind of battle within us the motivation of why we do what we do kind of rages in us and there's this kind of internal struggle. The problem is not that we wrestle internally. The problem for many of us is those internal wrestlings of why are never really resolved. And so the overflow of that into the lives of others brings chaos. Ask our family members. Ask our friends. Ask those we engage with on social media. But what if... What if there's a way for us to come to a place of understanding what our true motives are? What if we could come to a place where we could argue less for the sake of arguing 
or even for ourselves, our own agenda, but what if we could come to the place where, where ultimately it really was about the betterment of others? In fact, that becomes less about argument and that becomes more about love. What if there's a way for us to do this? In fact, this is what I want to say today is James in his book, he's, he's really practical and so all of his advice really is for us, here is how you live as a follower of Jesus. And in fact, I'll say this today, even if you're not so sure about Jesus, if you will embrace these ideas for your lives, I promise the people around you will like you more. It'll be better to be around So James keeps giving us practical advice on what does it mean to live out of true love and to find true life? Like, what does it mean to find purpose and identity? And so what Jesus begins to say is this, or what James begins to say about Jesus is what if you became, we became, true reflections of my brother Jesus? What if we became love in the flesh? I mean, this leads us to living in such a way that we wrestle and we evaluate What are the motives for why we do what we do? And what does it lead us to? See, I mean, James James knows a lot about this stuff because he watched Jesus grow up. And so I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. We're going to read from James chapter 4. We'll be reading the first 12 verses. And as we said, James is the brother of Jesus. and, And he wrote these words as a way to try to help us understand what it looks like to follow in the footsteps of his brother Jesus. And so here's what James writes, James chapter 4, we looking at the first 12 verses. Here's what they say. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But it gives us more grace. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or sister or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? The word of the Lord. Maybe seated. I mean, James knows a little bit about arguing. Um, in fact, you can go back and read some of the gospel stories. You'll see a story where, where Jesus is teaching and healing people. And it's kind of this incredible scene. And Jesus' brothers show up. And say, Jesus, will you just knock it off? I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I'm kind of adding to the story. It doesn't give us all these words, but I'm pretty sure they would exist if we could have heard the whole conversation. I mean, James is saying, Jesus, you're my brother. Stop telling people you're the son of God. I mean, Joseph was my dad too. Jesus, would you just stop this nonsense about you being some divine person? Mom's driving me nuts. Can you just knock it off and come get her to stop? She thinks you're some... Child of God too. I don't know what she's talking about. Would you just come home? 
I mean, I can hear the conversation. But James, James knows he's wrong. That's why he writes this letter to the church. He says, I was wrong. My brother really is the son of God. Don't ask me how that works, but that's true. In fact, I think the best way for us to live is to follow in his footsteps. And so James begins giving us kind of practical advice on how to do that. He says, you know, we, 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 we all want stuff. We all want kinds of stuff in our life. And so we, we don't usually receive the stuff that we want. And, and he says, well, here's why. Because usually we really want actual stuff, like real tangible stuff. So in other words, what if we begin to pray differently? He says, well, how do you get the stuff that you need? You pray. I'm not going to make it super complex. You pray about it. In fact, he says, well, here's, here's how you pray. And not, not this way, because I think um, we've all been guilty of praying this. We pray with kind of wrong motives, and they, those kind of prayers sound like this. God, I really don't want this to happen. But if it's your will, God, I, I really don't want this to be the case. Or we say, God, I really want... I really want this new whatever it is and fill in the blank. God, I really want this thing, this whatever. And some of them are good. Some of them are not bad, but we're praying not, not really for the sake of the mission of God, but for us. And what if we instead prayed this way? God, will you give me what I need? Will you help me to know more of you? God, will you give me clarity on what's best? God, will you help me to embrace your love? Like, I want to live a life where I reflect you more. Will you help me to see the things in my life that are hindering me from doing that? See, for many of us, when we pray, rather than seeking more of the presence of God, because that's honestly a little scary, we seek more of what we know. And so we pray prayers to get what we know because we already know that. But here's the challenge for us all. We all have an inner voice. All of us have an inner voice. But each of us have an inner voice that is being guided by different things. If we walk in step with God, if we live daily for Him, if we're in relationship with Him and with others in ways that are life-changing, then our daily walk becomes, if people speak into our life, that inner voice becomes a reflection of the divine love of God. It's an inner voice of love. And if that's the inner voice guiding us and it's true love that guides us, then our reflection of that in our lives becomes radically different. See, we can choose to live out of love and faithfulness or we can choose to live out of that internal struggle that exists in us that leads to quarrels and arguments. And about me and my right. And that's counter to Jesus and his gospel. It's good news for us. I mean, James goes on to say that here's one of the things that hold us back. We want friendship with the world. And so I want to say what that isn't first because sometimes people go, oh, the world's bad. It's not what James wrote. If you think that's what he wrote, you're just wrong. What James is saying here is this idea that if you think the world is bad, then you misunderstand the whole creation, (laughs) creating the image of God. God created the world around us and said it was good. But what he's saying is this, if we seek our own pleasure, our own stuff, or our own whatever, 
before we seek God, that, that's where the problem lies. It's that our desires can be things that, that rip us from right relationship with God. We can seek after the wrong kind of things. So in other words, when our stuff, our personal preference, our opinions, or even our complacency become things that are greater than our desire to live out and know God's divine love, and at best, we have a shallow faith. Or at worst, we have a complete lack of purpose in life. hope you caught that. If our relationship with God is more defined by what we hope to get or want or desire, then at best, we have shallow faith. And at worst, we have no real purpose in life. So two phrases I think that are important for us, and so I actually want to quote them because I don't want to screw them up. I want to actually read what I wrote. Um, if we seek pleasure over purpose, we will always be wrestling for more. If we seek pleasure over purpose, we will always be wrestling for more. And here's a really good line. Seeking God first does not mean the absence of pleasure Hope you caught that. Seeking God first does not mean the absence of pleasure, but seeking pleasure first does mean the absence of God. Right? God really does want us to have joy. James is saying here, come to a place of complete humility and submit yourselves to God. He isn't saying that joy is bad. He's saying that if you think that, that your own desire and your own pleasure and your own joy trumps everything, then you're never going to know the fullness of God's love. And in that space, when we know God in that way, we find a divine joy and pleasure that, that trumps anything we can imagine, that trumps situations and circumstances, so that in the best times and in the worst of times, God's grace is sufficient. God's love is enough. And we can reflect that in the middle of dark days. It's why when we've met those people who have rested in the Lord, who know him well, and they're going through difficult and hurtful times and they re reflect his love, it's why we go, I want whatever they have. They can go through this and they can live that way. Like, I just want that. But here's the good news for us. If we'll submit ourselves to God, if we'll lay down our rights, if we'll lean into him, he offers purpose and passion for life. He offers us the opportunity to overcome what wars in us, what quarrels and arguments we have among us, whatever that wrestle inside of us, he offers us the opportunity to come out of that. So in other words, submitting to God allows us to become all that we can be, all that he has for us. Our divine purpose can become known. We can live in such a way that we literally are changing the world when we come to know him, when we submit to him and we let go of what hinders us in that way. But to do this requires embracing what we talked about last week, this idea of embracing true humility. And we said last week that humility is not just thinking of yourself less thinking less of yourself. It's recognizing that we don't have all the answers, that we need God's grace, that we need one another, that we need to be his unique people in the world. It's recognizing that I'm not always right. It's recognizing that his rightness is better than mine. It requires swallowing our pride, letting go of our arrogance. Then we can become all that God has for us. And here's the good news of how he does this. 
He offers us His grace. And He offers us His grace, especially when we have fallen short. And this is who God is. I mean, so often, um, the reason we don't really, really embrace God's grace is because we don't give God's grace. Or our judgment gets in the way. I mean, once we have received God's grace and his love in our lives, we should be free givers of God's grace and his love. I mean, the church should be the people who are the most gracious, the most forgiving, the most generous. The church should reflect that in the world. Period. And when it doesn't, I'm not sure we know Jesus. Because here's the good news. When we truly embrace God's grace, he invites us nearer still. We get closer and closer, but when we don't embrace God's grace and God's love and God's direction, we begin to say things like this, I know best. In fact, we, we don't recognize that our pride doesn't recognize its own need for God. Pride doesn't even recognize its own sin. It's why we seek humility. Because the counter to pride or arrogance or self-control, or I should say control, not self-control, the counter to that is humility. And here's what, I'm going to summarize just a couple phrases in this text. Submit to God, resist the devil, and come near to him. So here's what I'm going to say. Like, we sometimes hear, like, resist the devil, and we think, like, there's a devil, like, right next to us or whatever. I don't know what we think. I, we have all kinds of bad pictures for that. Um, Most of them aren't that all that biblical when we start looking into them. They're just weird. Um, They're like from cartoons as much as anything. I mean, I don't know where we get our pictures of the devil, but what I will say is this. The devil near us is this, that when we listen to the wrong whispers, when we listen to the wrong whispers, here's one. I'm only human. That's a wrong whisper. Because God wants to redeem all of humanity. I'm damaged. It's a wrong whisper. I'm worthless. It's a wrong whisper. I'm ruined. I'm not good enough. Those are wrong whispers that surely are of the devil. But here's the good news for us. The grace of God comes dear in such a way that you and I don't have to live in that space. But to stay centered in knowing God requires living out of grace and humility. See, when we embrace this this humility, it places our causes, our desires, our wants as secondary to God and to loving others. This type of of connection requires, this requires us to live in a place where we have spiritual guides in our life. Like you cannot attain this kind of spiritual depth on our own. We cannot do it. Like the idea that me and Jesus is enough is just not true. We cannot get to this place of deep spiritual knowing on our own. It cannot and will not happen. But the good news is this, that in our humility, God lifts us up. In our humility, he brings people alongside James has been and continues to be in this whole passage really, really practical. And so next he says, our words matter. Our words matter. So I'm going to summarize what he says. Don't speak about one another. 
Do not talk badly about another person. If you think someone has wronged you, don't use social media or some other form of communication to let others know. You go to them. It is sinful to do anything other than that. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, well, here's, here's how we do this. You go to the person first. If that doesn't work, you grab a couple other people and you go to the person again. If that doesn't work, then you bring all the elders of the church and you go around them again. And then Jesus ends with this. Then you treat them as if they don't know who God is. Well, how does Jesus tell us to treat those people? With love. Not bitterness. Not anger. Not talking behind their back. You go to them. Because that's the Christ-like thing to do. I mean, I was talking with someone recently, and they were just talking about their wrestling with church and whether they want to be a part of one. And they just struggled. They said, because I walk in, and I walk into the four years of churches, and I hear people talking about other people, and I think, I can go to work and get that. I don't need to go to church for that. Like, if that's what God's about, I don't want anything to do with that. And I was like, well, I don't either. If I thought that was what Jesus called us to, I wouldn't want to be a part of a church either. But what if, what if God's people became more like God's people? What if our words were wrapped up in love? What if we, we met with people over cups of coffee? What if the church began to model to the world? Because you know, I don't know if you know this, but do you know who the, some of the worst people handling conflict are? There are people who go to church. And we literally have a formula for the best way to go about conflict. But James wants us to know, don't speak about others in ways that are broken. The questions we should ask before we speak especially about others, are this. Is it what I would want said or done about me? And does it reflect the love of neighbor that Jesus calls us to? James wants us to know that only God can judge the actions of the heart of others, the true motives, the intentions of what they're living out of. See, to question someone's motives without actual conversation is conjecture and gossip. It isn't love. But for us to gather together and to ask questions and to meet over cups of coffee, that's, that's an act of love. Anything less than that is not what God invites us to. And did you know, whether you go to church with people or not, if you function that way around them, they're going to like you more. They just will. We don't talk about our neighbors. We don't talk about our coworkers or people we work with. We go and go, hey, I'm really struggling. Like, I, like, you hurt me with this. You said this. Is that what you meant? But instead, we, we often take our wounds and we walk away and they have this internal struggle and then we, we don't heal it and it comes out and it's vitriol and it's violent and it's angry. And it doesn't bring healing or hope to the world. Finally, what James is saying is this. It's God's right to pass judgment, not ours. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, the measure you judge others, that's how you'll be judged. Ooh, that one scares me every time. See, at the end of the day, here's what God wants for us. He wants us to know our purpose. He wants us to receive his great grace and be givers of the same great grace. And he wants us to trust him to be the judge of others. I mean, I know that, that those three things sound really Simple, but they're pretty hard to embrace, to know our purpose, to receive his great grace and to be givers of his great grace, and to trust him to be the judge of others. 
It's what he invites us to. It's what James wants us to know. This is advice for practical living. And like I said earlier, if you're not even a follower of Jesus, these words still ring true. I mean, can you imagine if, if people said, they never say bad things about other people. Like that would be a win for every kind of environment you work in or go to school in or wherever you find yourself. Can you imagine if you knew your purpose in life and you knew you lived to be a reflection of God's divine love? Can you imagine the joy we would find in that if we put, put God first in that? Can you imagine what would happen if we, we were less likely to quarrel and have honest conversation with true dialogue? That, that looks like Jesus. In fact, this morning, we, we're going to take communion in just a moment. I, I mentioned that earlier. We're going to take communion. And, and, and I want you to know today that, that last week some people voted no on some stuff, and some people voted yes on some stuff, and today, I don't care how you voted, I'm not asking you. I'm asking us all to come around the same table, and here's the thing, sometimes we, we don't even like our family, like have you noticed this, and, and in fact, it talks about the church as one body, have you noticed there are times in your life you don't like parts of your body? I mean, like if you, if you <laughs> I, I'm, I, was, I, I can't say some things I was going to say, um, like, my left calf's been cramping a lot this week, so I'm going to say I don't like, no, my left calf's about, no, um, but, like, if you gain a little weight around the middle, right, I mean, like, you, you go, oh, I don't like this extra weight I've put on, like, but it's part of you, you got to love it. I mean, you can work to make it tighter, but it's still part of your body, right, like, it's not going anywhere, you can't just cut it off, that's not how that works. Church board met this week, and we still are 100% convinced God doesn't want us to stay where we are. It's not good enough. The mission of God is too important for stasis, for complacency. It is way too important for that. It's way more important than one yes or no vote. Period. So what I can tell you today is we, we, we're going to continue to take the one right next step. And this morning, that's inviting us all around a table together. To say, hey, do you, do you know how God works? He loves us. He's near to us. He offers his grace to us, and he says, will you be givers of my grace and my love? So this morning, we, we gather on this table, and we, we have to examine our hearts. I don't often spend a lot of time talking about this portion of taking communion, because typically, I, I think we've got a whole hour for you to examine your heart. I mean, like, literally, that's what the whole service is built towards. Every week, if you didn't know this, theologically, we build towards the table every single week. So that's why I don't talk about this a lot because literally we move to the response whether we take communion or not. But this week it may need, you, you may need to apologize to someone before you even take communion. You may need to go say a prayer. We're going to sing the song, Oh, Come to the Altar. You may literally need to come to the altar before you take communion this morning. Because God invites us to come with right hearts. God invites us to come. This is an act of of true worship. This is an act of saying, God, I, I, I take these elements as a reflection of your life, death, and resurrection, which gives me hope and life. And I want to live out of this space of life and love, and I want to live from this place where I'm a reflection of God's divine love. And if I am anything less than that at this moment, God, will you forgive me? And if there's someone I need to make a right relationship with, will you bring that person to my mind and will I go to them? See, this is the way God works. So the church becomes, for all people, a beacon of hope to the world. And not because we gather in a space with four walls, because then we've got it wrong again. 
But the church becomes the beacon of hope of the world because we learn to love one another in spite of our differences. We learn to love one another in spite of our differing views. We learn to not quarrel among one another just because we don't argue. We learn to know whether our motives are true and right and pure or if they're more about me than about God and others. And it's this challenge to deep spiritual growth and anything less than that is not following after him. And so this morning, we have opportunity together as the family of God. If you're like, I don't know if I believe in this stuff. Well, today you can choose to. Jesus loves you enough to give his life for you and for me and for us to embrace his grace and his truth that gives us purpose in the world to be his reflection, to go and make disciples, because that's the call on all of our lives. Whether you're 8 or 88 or somewhere in the between, it doesn't really matter. This is the divine call of God. It's worth giving your life to. Giving my life to it. We'll continue to do so. Will you join me? We join thousands upon thousands of people, millions of people over 2,000 years who have done the same. And we gather around this table as a symbolic act. But don't forget the people who took it the first time, or some people to later betray him. But it is because of God's great grace that he comes to him and he invites us back to his table again. This morning, as we take these elements, we do it as a reflection of God's love for us and an invitation to be givers of God's love wherever we may go. So we pray with me in this moment as those who come to help us with communion, as, as uh, the priest comes to lead us and will come to the altar. And if you need to come and pray this morning, it is not a reflection that you're far from God. In fact, it's usually a reflection that you're close to God. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to take these elements together this morning for the way in which you invite us to your table, that you invite us to come to be a people who embrace your divine love. That you invite us to speak words that build people up and don't tear people down. And so we pray this morning that, that we might confess in the areas where we have not done that well. We pray that we would come before you this morning and we would, we would find ways to speak as people who speak love and truth and hope and joy and power. We would speak life and not death. That we leave the judgment to you we go to one another, we'd speak well of one another, that we would love well so that the world would know who you are, not because of our quarreling and our conflict, but because of our great love and compassion and our generosity. And so, Father, help us to live that out this day, we pray. And as we prepare to take these elements that represent your grace to us, your broken body and shed blood that say to us, do you want to know how far my love will go for you? Even death on a cross is not too far for me. Even hell itself is not too far for me because there's nothing in this life you can do that I will not redeem. And so this morning, Father, as we take these elements, may we be reminded of your great grace that you desire to redeem the world and you desire to redeem us. And so we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.